I'm really sorry about this, but my neighbour's dogs have escaped into our garden and the dog walker has uh, left. It's uh, it, remarkable. She's somehow driven off without either of the dogs that she is supposed to be looking after. <laughs> Neither Lucy nor my daughter will leave the house while the dogs are in our garden. So I have to go out and get... One of them's a fucking big dog. So potentially, this might be the last you see of me. Uh, <laughs> Ricky, I'm sorry our friendship was so short. Yeah. I wish you all the best with your future endeavours. Hopefully, I'll be back in about two minutes. Um, good luck, buds. Thank you. Oh, Captain, my Captain. Oh, Captain, my Captain. Uh, welcome to Oh, Captain, my Captain. Uh, my name is Mark Olver, and I am here with the looking freshly. Um, I don't know, freshly shorn, freshly cool, freshly... Basically, he's had a lovely haircut, is Ricky Masindo. Hello, Mark. I'm feeling fresh. Finally, the mane is cut. I know no one can see it, but just know I am looking incredible, I must say. So this is the this is our last one of, uh, of this series, so the last one of 10. And then we've already got another 10 lined up uh, that we haven't recorded, but we started booking in, and we'll probably release those probably in about three or four weeks we'll probably give it a little bit of time just so when gigs start coming back and uh we got something to talk to ricky about and i want to talk to ricky about doing well at gigs and really importantly for me doing badly at gigs because yeah. i'm very excited about your first death yeah. i'm really excited yeah about you dying on your ass for the first time oh, i need it. um so let's talk about today's episode this is the preamble but i'll be honest with you i think our guest, our guest is. Uh, we could talk about it now because all the questions are in. Yeah. Um. So our guest is John Richardson. Yeah. Uh, who is a friend of mine? Who is an amazing comedian? And the only reason we, I didn't go on about it because I didn't want people to send in questions specifically for John. I wanted as generic questions as possible. Yeah. Uh, to come in for episode ten, so I didn't want them to say, "What was it like when you uh, first did eight out of ten cats? What's it like when you do meet the Richardsons?" I wanted, you know, him to be just another comic. I think that would be more useful. Definitely. We are recording this uh, just before eleven o'clock. I tell him to come in at eleven. This is going to be quite exciting because he is sort of the most obsessive compulsive person i know <laughs> so we've got a really good view of when he comes into this chat if he comes in on time or not yeah. and that's quite exciting yeah he'll be like one of the first to really be on time except he's it's he's pushing it because it, we've only got like two minutes until he comes in but knowing him i i've got a fairly good kind of uh instinct that he'll probably be here dead on time i love to imagine him waiting there just with the mouse hovering over the join button just waiting for 11 a.m absolutely i can absolutely imagine that happening so this is um we'll come up in the because i want to do one of these every series we'll come up with a fun title for it but basically this is ask a comic anything this yeah. is any questions about comedy and i don't know any of the questions nope John doesn't know any of the questions. No. You do. You're the only one. Yeah, I am the only one. This is my little collection of questions. Um, it literally hits 11 <laughs> and we go from two participants in this Zoom to three participants in this Zoom. That is... Hi, John Richardson. Hello there. How are you? I'm good, thank you. We have already started the podcast because um, I wanted to see if you were 
as punctual as your comic persona would say um you literally joined at exactly 11 o'clock that is perfect thanks guys thanks guys and that's the only tip i have to offer you ricky starting out get to gigs early or on time and that's me done so good luck with your career i'll see you both later (laughs) oh captain my captain yeah well i was almost late because you whatsapped me the uh zoom link because you're trying to be cool and down with the kids but i deal on email i was about to message you to say can you send me the login number and the passcode so i can do it on my laptop and do the podcast with a proper microphone to respect your career more than you have rather than on my phone (laughs) like a fucking hooligan um but then i realized i could just cut and paste the link because i'm pretty cool and tech wise myself so i cut and pasted the link you sent me and emailed it myself and here i am um, just to let you know, when you say things like respect your career um, and call me a hooligan, you're talking to me, Mark Olver, rather than Ricky Basinda, right? Oh, yeah. I, 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 have, I don't know Ricky enough to judge him yet, and I look forward to the point when I do. But you, sadly, <laughs> I know everything about you, old bean. Um, we, we're gonna, we've got questions, and we are just going to speed through them, but I want to get this one out of the way just so John can get all of his anger out of the way very early. Um, yeah, good luck with that. So <laughs> I've been trying met- to get my anger out for about 38 years now, and there's still plenty left. So, um, so Ricky, John also went to Bristol University. Ricky is a student at Bristol Uni. Good luck. Um, you've got something in common, actually, because neither of you have finished your Bristol University degrees yet. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> I didn't know that. Mine's ongoing. I'm having a uh, sabbatical that has currently run to... Oh, 20 years? Yeah. Well, you can finish it online just like I am right now. That's true, actually. Yeah, my, my professional career is the same as a degree at the moment. It's all online, isn't it? So, you're looking really good today, by the way. You're looking, uh, because of where the microphone is, uh, people at home can't see <laughs> but you're wearing a lovely little hoodie. Uh, and I don't know, is there something written on the hoodie? There was, yes. This is a hoodie that I received. Uh, it's a hoodie I got given free uh, for doing a gig for Tom Perry. Um, uh, for his, uh, he set up a gig in Wolverhampton to support the theatre group that he started off in, and I did the first one, and we got given a hoodie. And I think they probably thought, "We'll give him the hoodie; they'll never wear it." This gig was ten or twelve years ago, <laughs> and I still wear the hoodie to the point where you now can't even see what it is. I think it's Central Youth Theatre, um, but I only wear hoodies and tracksuit bottoms now because I don't leave the house or do anything. Um, I wear a lot of shorts. Yes, I bet you do. I bet you do. <laughs> what, uh, why? Why do you wear shorts? I just like wearing shorts. I just, I, I think I've got warm legs. What a strange flex! It was like you were bragging. <laughs> <laughs> like, I have, I have shorts, money. Yeah, there's, there's. Uh, hang on. Um, uh, can I just take this call from Lucy? Do you edit this? Of course podcast? you can. Uh, yeah, of yeah, course yeah, you can. For mute. Not like, um, I, and I've got two. I've got two jalapas. I now I'm just imagining you as like a Jedi with shorts. You can't see the shorts because the jalaba goes all the way to the bottom. <laughs> God, now I'm just wondering what Jedi's wear under the robes. I'm really sorry about this, but my neighbour's dogs have escaped into our garden, and the dog Walker has uh, left. It's it, remarkable. She's somehow driven off without either of the dogs that she is supposed to be looking after. <laughs> Neither Lucy nor my daughter will leave the house while the dogs are in our garden. So I have to go out and get... One of them's a fucking big dog. So potentially, 
this might be the last you see of me. Uh, <laughs> Ricky, I'm sorry our friendship was so short. Yeah. I wish you all the best for the future endeavours. Hopefully I'll be back in about two minutes. Um, good luck, bud. <laughs> Thank you. So that is uh, John Richardson going off to uh, get some dogs out of his garden. Yeah. Um, so his wife and his daughter can leave the house. Um, and everything I said at the beginning about trying to get rid of John Richardson's anger, uh, the dogs in the garden would have brought it all back to him. <laughs> wow. If we could literally see him, that would sound like the most sophisticated excuse in the world. Yeah, no, do you know what? <laughs> You're right, actually. I just saw him nipping out then. I don't think you were expecting... Uh, these sorts of things that happened when we started this podcast, were you? Yeah, I'll tell you what, it's taken a lot of the glamour out of stand-up comedy, <laughs> I have to say. Watching John at, live at the Apollo, I never thought, you know what, this is what he does on a Monday. I think we'll ask him about that when he comes back, actually. The, the, the difference between um, the public perception of a comedian. Here we go, he's finally returned. Love to see it. Hey. This is good. Oh, it's got the old blood pumping. <laughs> um, oh, you all right? Yeah, it's got chased by a big dog. <laughs> <laughs> oh, it's very hard when, even though society has moved on, there's still certain things a man is expected to do rather than send his four-year-old daughter out to do. And corralling big dogs is one of them. But it turns out, I'm not not as comfortable with a big dog as I think I am. <laughs> I just had to really, oh, I really turned and sprinted. I took a picture of the big dog so you can see how. <laughs> That's a big dog, right? That is a that big, is a big dog. It's a big dog, and it just chased me into my own house. <laughs> so uh, I'm confused. I thought you were getting rid of the dog. Well, the dog escaped from the neighbor's house. They come into our house. Um, to defecate on our lawn frequently. Neighbours or the dog? Uh, well, it could be anyone, to be honest. <laughs> um, so, yeah, I went out to alert the neighbours to the fact that the dog walker has left, clearly just for a walk on her own. Perhaps she's had a breakdown or that's her way of quitting. But um, as I was shouting into my neighbour's uh, kitchen door, the dogs saw me and started running towards me and barking. So I ran back into my own house. Oh... It's a good job. What I've learned today, if I was more successful than I am, I would have a bigger house and a longer driveway and the dog would have caught me. So actually, it's it's thanks to not having made it to Hollywood yet that I'm still alive. <laughs> That's the moral. We, we were talking about uh, the difference between the public... But basically, Ricky has said that doing this podcast has made him realise the reality of stand-up. That he's seen John Richardson on Live at the Apollo and wasn't expecting, as a new comedian, to reach a point where he sees, like, you know, John Richardson all glitzy and glamoury at uh, the Hammersmith Apollo in a hoodie being chased by a dog. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Um, yeah, how do you feel about that? How do you feel about the, the reality of stand-up? Is it in a good way or a bad way? It's a, it's really interesting because it's like, it's so, because I think before I probably started doing stand-up, stand-up comedians on TV were the same as rappers or so singers, you know, that kind of thing where it's like, they, they just exist in their own world. Like, you don't even think that they have 
an actual life where they're chasing dogs and dogs are chasing them and stuff like that. So in a way, let's say it's destroyed the magic. <laughs> but it makes it so much more achievable, doesn't it? It's you know, If there were real magic, then nobody would become a magician. But it's the very fact. You see Paul Daniels doing ball in a cop and then you realise, oh, he's just spent hours practising that in his bedroom. Exactly the same with stand-up. I find it fascinating that more stand-ups don't get more grief because what you've hit on there is one of the true... I, I was amazed when I first started doing stand-up and I had exactly the same view that, like, well, Lee Evans is probably arrives in, like, a minibus and, you know, there isn't a comic in the country, I don't think, of any level of success who doesn't rock up to their gigs driving themselves because they want to leave as soon as they're done. You know, McIntyre's just driving to the O2 in his car and then leaving again there's no you know if you google the nearest premiere in to any comedy club or theater that's probably where the comic is staying there's so little glitz and glamour we know. we do joke about this but you were the first time you met me you were slightly impressed right yeah of course yeah for how long and how long did that last oh 17 seconds i think it's as <laughs> i was running towards you i started to realize He's not, he seemed like a giant on stage at Jester's. No, I, I remain impressed. I think comedy is, it's, it's, it is one of the coolest skills to have. And it is that thing that people who don't do stand-up never learn. So in their view, you are always, wow, God, you do stand-up. Or your mates who you're at uni with and yeah. people who've seen gigs will just think, fucking hell, I can't imagine doing that. It's only through doing it and meeting comics that you realise, oh, you're just people who yeah. do stuff. And then you have the arrogance to think you can tell other people about it and yeah. charge them money to hear about it. It's insanity, really. <laughs> but it does remain, it's a magic skill. But the, the, the big thing that we can never tell people is you can learn it really easily. You know, there are stand-ups who are not funny people who don't like stand-up who still earn a really good income from stand-up because they've just chosen stand-up in the way you might choose to become an electrician. You just <laughs> learn how to do it. Well, the quotes of this, the quotes of this already, like, if magic existed, no one would become a magician. What I like about this, <laughs> is that, uh, what I like about this is that John Richardson has heard Ricky go, yeah, sort of the magic has gone a little bit, and Richardson has gone, oh, you think the magic's gone now? Just give give me a couple of minutes, right? <laughs> <laughs> hold, hold my beer. Hold my beer. I will get rid of any magic that is still there. He literally is a dementor. He is an actual dementor. <laughs> but I I think that's better because I think magic is unachievable. But as soon as you strip away all the stuff and you realise, I heard you talking about Dave Chappelle on you know one of the other podcasts. That is, mm. once you realise, there's no barrier between you and Dave Chappelle. There's no, you know, yeah. stand up is still there. Are people who are better than others? People who are naturally gifted in the same way football. But ultimately, the skills are really visible and obvious, and it's just a matter of application and, you know putting the hours in you you are you telling yeah. me that there's no barrier between me and dave Chappelle? i don't think so mark i mean he he might have just worked a bit harder than you or maybe <laughs> the barrier is that you haven't smoked enough weed to unlock that level of your consciousness yet that he's been <laughs> able to explore fully but no I, I think the fact that it's not magic means oh there's it's achievable for me to that he's just better than me at it or she's better than me at it they've just they've worked harder or they've had a, a life experience that means they can talk about things i can't and then you can rationalize and understand so i always felt the same about optimistic people i was like, oh you're lucky because you naturally you're happy when you wake up and you think the world is good and i've i've learned over the years that that's the same it's not the 
case. It's just some people work really hard at trying to believe the best about the world and people. And then that becomes achievable as well. You think, oh, I could become an optimist. I just choose not to because it's funnier to hate everyone. <laughs> you can make a career out of it. That's so interesting. Like because the thing you said about Dave Chappelle, because it's like it is kind of true that when you look into the story of a lot of comedians, like the big ones, a lot of them started ridiculously young and they fell in love with it. They got obsessed and they just they did it. They did as many gigs as I've done in my entire life in like a week because they just really wanted to do it. So it's yeah, it is just work at the end of the day. A lot of the time with this, it seems. Yeah, and an acceptance of you know your potential. You know that that thing uh, Jimmy said of uh, wanting to be a circuit comedian. I think is the biggest thing, and that's all I had. Is if I pay my bills doing stand up comedy, that is the best life I can imagine for myself. So I knew instant at the time I said that I was living in a bed sit in Bristol. So my bills were. £261 a month I paid for that sit. <laughs> so I already knew if I can run a car on top of that and eat food occasionally, <laughs> I can live for like 400 quid a month. You know, that means I've only got to get one paid weekend and a couple of student gigs. And that professionally is as happy as I need to be for a while. It would be nice to get more. But, you know, once you accept I'm working as hard as I can, I'm doing everything I can, I'm listening. Therefore, that is that's my potential for the time being. It's so much more relaxing than believing that there's, you know, there's just this magic thing that's going to happen. And autobiographies are the worst. That's the one thing I would say is not to read comics autobiographies. Oh, really? There's a few that are honest about, you know, books and things. But there's also, inevitably, you, you start telling a story about how you got famous. Because the reality of all autobiographies of, I did shitloads of gigs, and this is roughly how good I am in the pecking order. And I was lucky and I had this opportunity. It's not a good story. And as soon as you start saying, well, I just happened to be there and that person was in who books that and then they introduced me to that person. That's all That's all nonsense, I think. Yeah, no, it is. A lot of it is just like right place, right time. That sounds a bit... Gig, 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 gig. And enjoy it, you know. <laughs> See, but that's Hold that. on, wait, wait, wait. Sorry, Ricky, I'm going to have to step in ever so slightly here because John Richardson just said, gig, 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 gig and enjoy it you've never enjoyed a fucking gig in your life <laughs> like you've never enjoyed any the only element of the comedy world that you enjoy is drinking with comedians you absolutely hate you hate gigging i i feel an immense pressure whilst gigging so yes it's true to say i've never enjoyed the gig itself <laughs> is the work I enjoy the drive to the gig. I enjoy the green room. I enjoy, you know, chatting with the other people at the gig. I, you know, the Glee weekends were like the, the peak of my career. We were gigging with, you know, Griff was there and, and Tim and Alistair. And they're just really funny people who ran the gig. And you were always on with good comics. And you were getting paid to stay in a hotel. You didn't even have to pay for your own hotel. I mean, it was just... That said, the gigs themselves were torture because I was always convinced this is the one I'm going to die so badly that I never get booked here again. Um, and then when you came off, there was like a relief. But I, I enjoy being a comedian. But Mark is exactly right to say I, I don't enjoy the gigs. And I haven't missed. I've been See, amazed. I love the gigs. Been amazed how little I've missed gigging this year. Really hasn't. Oh, God. I love, I love gigs. I love, like, I don't mind a green room, but I tend to, on a Saturday, I would tend to just 
get back to the hotel as quickly as possible for match of the day. Um, I just love gigs. I absolutely love being on stage. I love talking to audiences. I like it much more than you, right? Yeah, but then don't you then... Uh, uh, how often do you sort of come off and beat yourself up about, oh, yeah, if I'd have done that better or that wasn't the best intro for that person or oh, I, sh- I meant to go out there and do that bit and I forgot because that thing happened. That is no, the consequence it, yeah, yeah. God. <laughs> I feel like some comedians they have different parts of the experience that they enjoy. So like actually one of the questions was like, so you you don't do you enjoy pre, during or post gig? What which part? Is it just pre and post? Ooh. You see, now I'm rowing back on my gig, 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 angel. <laughs> when you say it like that, none of those. Um, but of all of them, posts, if you come off and you've you've done well, that yeah. is the euphoric feeling. And I had that yeah. after my first gig. Pre was absolutely unbearable. Mm. Pre was five pints and a Jack Daniels and no food all day and being sick and then doing a gig. During, I can't really remember because I was so there was so much adrenaline but then post was fantastic and yeah post i think is the bit where as long as you've done your best and you've you know like on tour i will still i I think it's a sort of a a feeling of duty to the audience that i will get there at a certain time i'll eat at a certain time i'll still go through my notes and every gig i kick a gig diary for every tour and i'll handwrite every bit of material and it's the same every night so i'll write I don't know what it is, bubblegum bit, haircut bit, shopping bit. And I'll do that every night. And I, I know it by about 10 gigs in, you know the structure. But I feel like, well, why would I not do that for the audience in Plymouth? Because I did it in Wolverhampton. So I'm going to sit here so that if the gig goes badly, I've controlled all the things I can control. I know that I got here at the right time. I didn't drink. I ate the right food. I got my outfit ready. I planned my set. Then if something happens and it goes badly, you can at least think, well, I'm mortified and depressed and in tears, but I don't think I could have changed the outcome of that. It just was a, a bad gig. Um, my post, uh, my post gig uh, traditions and rituals are: what can I go in the cinema? Can I get to that film as quickly as possible? And do I have to choose between a McDonald's on the way home or a KFC on the way home? Which one of them is open? That's... Is there a restaurant that is still serving until half past ten? Can I get there? The answer um, is no. The answer is exclusively no. You can never eat proper food <laughs> after a gig. It's never happened to me. And that's another thing I thought would change with touring. I thought, I'll rock up. I'll be in this hotel. They'll say, oh, we know you're playing the theatre, so we'll keep the restaurant open. The chef's a big fan. It's never happened once. I've never eaten proper food after a gig. And the idea of going to the cinema after a gig is insanity. I used to love uh, Birmingham Glee Club, uh uh, looking to see what films are starting at like at half ten, because then you know that the actual film itself will start at eleven or five to eleven, and yet running through Birmingham to get to this film to just chill out and what and go to the cinema after a gig, absolutely joyous. Helps you joyous. get there on time with a with a full crowd chasing after you, screaming. I <laughs> really helps you get. I can't imagine that. Because that to me speaks to someone who, when you step off the stage, job done, I've finished, I've done my thing. I I come off and that is the most intense. And then I will go to the gig diary again. I've got my three coloured pens. I've got my black pen, my blue pen and my red pen. 
I will make red notes for things that didn't work. I will make blue notes for ad-libs or add-ons to bits that previously worked. And black notes are just structure for the next gig. And I will do that after every gig because that is the work period. The gig is like, I planned the set. I sort of knew what I was going to do. I made sure that if something happened, I was mentally prepared to ad-lib. But after the gig is, right, how do I make sure tomorrow's gig is better than that gig? So the idea of coming off and then being like, I'll go and watch The Invisible Man. It's like that to me, the drive to the gig. I said this to Andrew Bird on his podcast, the drive to the gig and the drive from the gig. They're the work bits for me. They're where you're planning that day's thing, sort of like teaching. You're planning that day's teaching and then afterwards you're you're doing your marketing. Uh, Ricky, just to let you know, I am uh, successful at what I do. Uh, I am not as successful as John Richardson, but I am a successful stand-up comedian. You can make a decision if you want uh, my life. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> Don't ask people to pick between the cinema and crying in a travelogue. <laughs> That's not fair. <laughs> I will. Go, I will always make sure that I've got time to get myself a lovely uh, Ben and Jerry's before the cinema as well. And I'm sat in there eating me ice cream joyously. Uh, you see. I've probably got drinks that I've stolen from the green room. Uh, and I rock. So, so Ricky, this is uh, this is a sliding doors moment. You can choose uh, a lovely, comfortable career and joy, or you can choose that <laughs> absolutely and I, I have to stress i think because i know you so well and we're just chatting i forget to make it clear these aren't criticisms these are genuinely two ways of approaching and there are yeah. comedians who are infinitely better than me and they are better than me because they arrive at the gig and they think well if i go on happy and relaxed and i make the most of every moment on stage that is and, and that's their way of doing comedy it's not mine mine is like well i'll plan it to the nth degree and then across a tour of 80 gigs those 80 audiences could take an average of how good i was it is so mathematical to me they'll all yeah. get to see the same i don't want someone in newcastle to meet someone from cardiff and say we well, didn't do the spoons bit when i saw him because then i feel <laughs> i've shortchanged the cardiff audience even if what happened was an ad lib that went on for 20 minutes that was the funniest thing of the whole tour i still think mathematically i failed because I didn't present the show, you know, and it's definitely a weakness. It's not, it's not, you know, I'm, I have to make it clear that Mark's way is better. And Mark, as a result, will remember his gigs better. This episode is billed as a um, sort of any questions for John Richardson. I mean, we could get rid of that and just do a whole episode on what the fuck is wrong with John Richardson. <laughs> I guarantee there are whole YouTube videos about that. I've had that all morning with Lucy and Elsie. So <laughs> please ask me some questions. I mean, I'm thinking that big dog wouldn't chase anyone. That big dog just saw you and thought, I'm fucking having him. I'm having him. There's a lot yeah, of well, negativity. The, the dog was sort of trotting towards me and it was the little dog that was barking and I had to make a very quick decision. Is the dog all right? Because I knew instantly when I turn and run, the dog will run. <laughs> so you know it was a split second decision I, I created that situation in which the dog chased me by wanting to be chased <laughs> um how long uh <laughs> <laughs> oh i've just remembered we've had security cameras fitted to the front of the house when this podcast <laughs> finishes, i can go and <laughs> i can go and watch myself running away from a big dog and that's going to cheer me. Ricky. So, John, Ricky has got questions. I don't know what these questions are. Um, these are generic questions about stand-up. I know nothing. Um, 
Ricky, do you want to yeah. start the formal process? Yeah, let's do this. Crack the knuckles. Let's have at it. Okay. <laughs> Time for Ricky to join the spotlight. Okay, so <laughs> one of the most common questions I got, which you've kind of addressed a bit, but you've given the answer everyone gives. But here's the question. How do you really get from an open spot to being paid for gigs? Like, how would you describe the key steps of that? Because everyone just says gig, 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 but there's no instructions of where, when do I get money, essentially? Yes, well, um, aside from gigging, I would say learn to drive and turn over your material. Not, not just to, you can gig, gig, gig and get an amazing 10, yeah. But then what will happen is you'll get booked for that 10 and people will know, ah, there's an open spot who's amazing. So if you want yeah. an amazing gig, you book him. If you never quite have an amazing 10, and I think that's what probably me and Oliver and Russell and people like that did, it was never about the perfect 10. It was about, right, that 10's good. Now I'll start the next 10. And that actually, although it's a, a good way to become a comic, it's also a good way to start getting paid because then you'll start getting repeat bookings people are thinking oh he was here doing a 10 two weeks ago but i know for a fact he's done seven gigs then he's probably got another 10 by now so i'll bump uh. him 30 quid and he'll come back and then you start getting comparing because they'll know oh he's got like an hour now of little bits that he can do between acts so he can compare every month because i know he's writing um, and he's up for it so i would say you know turning over material and a willingness to travel is the way to get paid do you um, remember the first paid gig you got uh, I remember the first time I got a hundred pounds because that was just life changing, and that was uh, that was exactly that. That was on the understanding. I was actually told, "Don't tell them I'm paying you a hundred pounds <laughs> because you played there last month, and they'll be angry." But I know you've got new bits since then, so you can go down and compare for a hundred pounds. Plymouth, Torquay, Torquay, Torquay. Ooh. Yes, converted <laughs> strip joint in Torquay. The, I mean, the West Country was a killing ground for, you know, comics that can't make it from London when someone pulls out. And there's so many. And, and, and I moved to Swindon as well, I, w I would advise as well, if, if you don't want to prioritise your happiness. If you want to be equidistant from gigs in London, Bristol, Birmingham and Bournemouth, then get yourself to Swindon ASAP. But yeah, turning over material is, is definitely the way to, to get paid. Yeah, I think I agree with with most of that. I think it's very different for for John and I, and also Ricky starting outside of London. Um, there are, there are fewer gigs, but there's also fewer comics. Mm. And I think in London, you're just fighting for 90% of your gigs that you will do will be um, unpaid open mic nights, new material nights. Like that is 90, 95% of what you do in the West country. It's probably, when we started, probably 30% of the gigs that we did were open mic nights because we would do the Bunch of Grapes on a Sunday and we would do maybe Clifton Comedy on a Tuesday. But then we were, and Jester's on a Wednesday, but then we would try and find other stuff. Nowadays, it's probably 60, 40. Mm -hmm. Like there are, like people, promoters, people who own pubs, people who own clubs will still ask me to put on a paid bill. So I will try and give money to an open spot to do a middle 10 or Morgan Reese to, to open, you know, something like that. So there is still money out about. Yeah. And I think that 
the the West Country, I think it's the same up north as well. I think the northwest, the northeast, Scotland, the Midlands. I think London and the southeast is a slightly different beast here. That's an ethos thing as well. Like, I I never wanted to do that London thing because I thought, mm. well, you're not. You've got the same experience every night. It's a different gig, but you're doing the same set with the same people, and you're getting the tube. Like if I could get thirty quid to do that set in Birmingham and drive there you're just you're having experiences and it feels you're more immersed in the world of a stand-up than didn't want to just get the tube to five gigs in a night and do the same 10. i thought well i've had yeah. a better time driving to Torquay, staying in a hotel meeting other comics than i have doing that repeated process again people mm. talk about stage time as the thing to make a comic i think i add in gig miles as well gig. uh because you because it's not just always gigging in bristol or always gigging in london or always gigging in manchester same types of people are there mm. same demographics of people are there gig miles makes you appreciate it but also gives you a hundred different types of gigs nice gigs and shit gigs you know gigs yeah. i mean we've all got the worst gig that we've done and most of them will be a Jeff Whiting gig in the middle of nowhere because no one knows that the comedy is going to happen and we've died on our ass <sighs> but that makes you a better comic. And you've got to have time to change as well. You know, you do five gigs in a night. What can you possibly change from one gig to the next? Because you haven't had time to mull over. Oh, that bit would go better with that bit. And, you know, those three bits are a story rather than one-liners. If you just literally walk five doors down, you're going to do the same set again. You're going to make the same mistakes immediately after. It's just going to annoy you. And when you get to the third gig, if you're anything like me, you're just going to be livid. And you're going to walk on and say, I've got to be honest with you guys, I am shit. <laughs> uh, I just died at two gigs and I'm going to do the same stuff. So, you know, do the gig, then watch a headliner and see how it's done. I mean, those nights at Jester's were like, I think we all accelerated so much faster because it was a big gig for an open spot. You do your 10 that you'd be pouring over all week and then you'd watch someone just smash 50 minutes or an hour and you learn more watching them than from your own set, you know, without doubt. Because they've played the same audience and you lose all that arrogance of, oh, yeah, it's just because, you know, that's a different crowd. You watch, well, that's the room I've just gone on in. So there's that's the same room and I died and they've smashed it. So why? That's the learning process rather than just saying your gags, I think. Yeah. Yeah, we got, we got very lucky in the West Country. I think it's still the same where we basically have more stage time because we're not fighting as against as many people so richardson robbins uh will hodgson uh russell howard you know we've all had this time to kind of be comfortable and to fail on stage as well that's yeah. the other thing i always worry about people in london uh not being able to you know doing badly and then someone goes oh well you're obviously shit like we've been able to be bad in bristol for ages because mm. No one realizes. Yeah. And you learn I mean, more from that than anything else. Death is what teaches you how to live, guys. Yeah. <laughs> I know, just just got to contact my guy at the t shirt company. Um, <laughs> you don't learn from doing well all the time. You just think you're brilliant. And there yeah. are certain acts, and we won't name them because it seems like an insult, but it's not. But they come out fully formed. You know, they come out with this persona and this 10, 20 minutes that is bulletproof. And you think, my God, I can't compete with that. Their time of difficulty comes further down the line, trying to turn that 20 in an hour or trying to change that persona so it's more adaptable to different arenas. And then they think, oh, God, I actually fundamentally don't know how to be a comic. I just know how to write 
in that voice and then they get yeah. bored of it or they want to do something else so yeah um you know i'm, I'm sort of trying to paint my blandness as a positive <laughs> <laughs> i was lucky oh, i never had a thing i mean it's not all right for your career mate um next question ricky yeah yeah that's that's really interesting so, so kind of going off of that is there can you tell who is gonna do well in stand-up from the beginning like from the open spots or people who can who actually have like does it exist the idea of saying i'll take it i'll it. take this one go for it i'm taking this one uh i'm taking this one because um i've seen it and yes like as soon as i saw uh as soon as i saw john richardson as soon as i saw russell howard i instantly went well they're going to be absolutely fine because they were naturally funny uh they were naturally good on stage and i knew that they weren't wasters who weren't going to work hard on it so i uh -huh. instantly knew that they were absolutely going to nail it there are certain people like john robbins who i instantly knew was funny and sharp and clever and i knew that he was going to be fine but i never knew if he was going to work hard enough at it and then he did and he was absolutely brilliant um those are the two things you can spot really early if someone has got that charisma i remember seeing <laughs> i remember seeing andrew lawrence as an open spot at the first time in birmingham and he's had a checkered career and a checkered personal history but i mean richardson you'll agree with me the first time you see andrew lawrence fuck me he blows those gigs out of the water yeah well since you reference him he's he's one of the people i meant in my last answer that you know, we started roughly at the same time. And if we were on a competition build together or there was like, we were both the open spots, I just knew oh, I'm going to struggle it. Because that, that persona he had and the guitar and the hair, it was finished. It was ready. And his difficulty came then, how do I turn that into an hour? And then how do I do a second hour? And that's when he had to think, right, I need a, I need a, a more rounded persona because this character can't do this. This character can't go on a panel show and this character can't, you know, riff on the thing that's just happened in the room because it's such a closed world. So, but yeah, the, the, the first gigs were just, you were like, well, that's, I could see that on telly immediately. You could put him straight on live at the Apollo doing that 10 and it was, it would have been fine because it was, it was finished but i would echo what mark said you it, it depends on what you class it as you can't spot i don't think who's going to become billy Connolly, but you can spot who really wants to and because i as i've said earlier i think you can learn stand up i think that that's that matters more than the gig and my big thing is what does someone say when they walk in the dressing room after they've died and if they're walking after they've died and they say oh they didn't get it or uh... god that that didn't go that didn't go well because of that. You think, oh, you're fucked because you're not you're not taking it seriously. You're blaming other people. You're just waiting to become good. If someone dies and they walk in and they're in tears or they can't talk to you because they're ashamed of what's just happened, they're the people you think, oh, you're fine because you this you're taking this so personally. You will not allow yourself to not get better and you'll pour over it. And that is the big one, I think. And I've gigged with acts who are now brilliant, but I've had you know I've, I've seen them in tears and you you just think well you're all right because you're not going to come off and cry every night so you're either going to get better or you're going to stop mm. uh, either way that's fine with me <laughs> it's possible it's possible to see someone 
die on their ass and still go, oh, God, I can see what you're trying to do. Like, I can see what yeah. you're attempting. I can see why you are a very good comedian. I can see why you might be a very good comedian. Yeah, it's just such a strange concept for me still. The idea of a good comedian dying on their ass. Because obviously I get it. It's, you know, trial and error. You write new things. Sometimes they don't work. But in my head, it's kind of like, well, if you've told a joke and you know it works, if you're dying on your ass, can't you just tell the joke you know works? Like, when you say dying on your ass, do you mean the entire audience is silent? Or do you mean you just, they were never in like raucous laughter or something. Oh, they're telling you to fuck off. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and throwing things and telling you fuck off and chasing you to the voo so that you don't get time for your Ben and Jerry's before the film. Yeah. Um, but it's all of those. I mean, as you progress, you'll learn the skills so that you never have that sitting in silence because you learn to make what you don't have at the beginning is to learn how to make dying funny. Yeah. So when you, I remember doing Will's gig in Chippenham, and the even just the setup to the first gag, I expected a laugh and didn't get it, and I was so green and so terrified, I jumped straight to the punchline of my final gag. So it gave them no chance. I'd done half a setup and a punchline that they hadn't seen the setup for, and then I was fucked because then I only had eight and a half minutes of what goes in the middle. And I didn't, you know, if I was in that situation now, you'd, you'd play with the room a bit and you'd, you'd just reference that that joke hadn't done well. Even that yeah. is a way of saying, I'm with you, I'm in the room, and I know that bit died. And they'll laugh out of a release. They'll think, oh, at least they understand that that was shit. And then you've yeah. got them on side again. But when you're new, you think, oh, I better not let them know that I know that was shit. And they're looking at you thinking... This this guy just doesn't understand. He, yeah. he knows he's crap, but he's now trying to trick us by looking confident, and that's not going to work. So you'll never have that death again once you learn the skills of how to play with the room. But death for me now is if I go to a gig and I've got five bits that I need to try, and they all don't do well, even though I've tricked them into laughing, you know, I'll do the pen thing and I'll say, "Oh, I'm crossing that one out," and they'll laugh at that because that's yeah. funny. I know the bits I came, the bits I care about oh shit and therefore i have failed in what i came here to do this evening but hopefully touch wood you'll never have that like flaming silence from start to finish thing again a death is if you have been booked to do 10 minutes and you can't continue after three minutes if you've been booked to do 20 minutes and you can't continue after seven minutes and i've seen this at professional gigs just for some reason just for whatever reason people have just uh they've gone on and the audience just haven't just for some reason we talked about magic at the beginning for some reason the anti-magic is happening and it just goes and and everyone whatever level you're at will will suffer from that at some point yeah yeah that, that's good to know because it was um because something that angela said on the other, last episode was about like how she used to go to open mics and it would be like she people would come off the stage who'd been doing stand-up for like 10 years but were still open spots and they didn't realize that they just died on their ass and it's like since then i've just been like oh my god have I been dying on my ass this whole time? And I just don't know. I just don't know. But it's good to know it's not... Oh, it's... you know when you've died. Uh, yeah, that's good to know. It's good to know, like, because I'm, I'm very... 
I'm waiting for that moment when it's just like, Christ, I need to reevaluate everything. But also, you you will know, Ricky, because if I'm there, I will tell you. And that's the <laughs> other thing. <laughs> but that's the other thing about being friends with comedians, which people don't realise when they start stand-up. Because stand-up seems like, we've talked about this before, such a solo endeavour, but yeah. actually it's much more collaborative. And if you are friends with people, I remember me, Richardson and Russell back in the day would have long phone calls on our way back from gigs in the car talking about, you know, what has just happened. And and if you're on the same gig together or if you just talk about it together and you go, oh, shit, oh, OK, that was... That was <laughs> that was bad, <laughs> yeah. you know, and and I think there's probably a culture where the opposite of that happens, and everyone goes, "Oh, you were great, mate. Don't mm. you worry about it." The, the audience were rubbish. Oh, they're always like that here. Trust me. Whereas actually, you need honest, insightful, aware people near you, and they will go. But you know, you did that there, which is why that died on its ass. If you did that there that would have been absolutely fine. Mm. But you forgot to do that bit to set up who you are. So that's why they looked at you weirdly. And, you know, yeah. it's, it's those guys. I live with Matt Ewins, who who would and does die a lot when he started. And the conversations that we have, looking into the minutiae of what he's doing, that's how you can take a, a death and make it useful. Mm. All right, that's good to know. Um, next question, Ricky Masindo. Okay, so next question: How can you stand out among promoters? Because most gigs are like uh, advertised online or whatever, or even if you're meeting someone in person. Like, what do promoters look for in people who are starting out, like open spots? It's it's a combination of what you do and on and off stage. So on stage, first and foremost, you've got to do well because if you don't, you there's nothing you can do off stage to get rebooked if you don't do well at the gig but turning over material and you know presenting something different will will make a promoter want to book you again because they they want a regular crowd as well and and crowds do like you know like a regular mc is is a real thing because it is a relationship between the audience and the crowd and they like to catch up with you again and I, starting out i got loads of gigs where luckily they said to me well why don't you come back every month and you know you then you start to recognize people and you've got that thing i think i've got to be different this time because i know that person sits in that chair and i know that table of that family are all going to come again and i can't do the same stuff again and it forces you to write and get better but you know just generally get there early don't don't be a dick about it be nice mm. stay for the gig like appreciate the gig and appreciate the sort of hospitality of you know being allowed to stay and watch a full gig and that's another thing i you know it's a, a real red flag if someone arrives does their set and leaves because i think mm. what what are you going to do now there's a gig on what are you possibly going to do for the next hour mm. that is more informative than seeing your peers go on in the same room or seeing you know whoever it is noel james or someone's about to come out that you will learn from um so yeah stay stay for the full gig get there for the beginning stay to the end i think some people get into that when you say how do you get noticed? Some people will think to themselves, oh, well, I've got to wear uh, that suit or I've got to wear a big hat or I've got to have a branding thing or a marketing thing. And we've spoken in this podcast about finding your voice. And I think what we discovered is your voice will find you yeah. as you go along. And so don't worry too much about that. Don't worry mm. about 
worry about the things that John said. Worry about being funny, having a good gig, turning the material over, being a nice person, being fun to be around, being easy to be around. You know, just those things. And agents and promoters. Agents and promoters are nearly always either comedy fans or they went into it as comedy fans. Mm. Like even people who have lost the joy, they yeah. they chose that because they loved comedy. Comedy fans are audiences. So those audiences are exactly the same as Hannah Chambers from Chambers Management, Danny from Off the Curb. They're comedy fans. They absolutely love it. Yeah. Um, so give them the same thing that they would love that an audience would love. Mm. Okay. This is a this is another question. This is one. This is kind of one of mine, but kind of uh, changed from one that someone gave me. As a comedian, when you meet new people who know you and know you're a comedian, do you feel like you have to be funny, or how do you deal with that? Because no one expects like Taylor Swift to bust out a song every time they meet them. But if you're invited to a dinner party by I don't know, like your wife's friend or something. How do you deal with that aspect of it? I used to warn people before they met John. (laughs) (laughs) I actually sing a lot of Taylor Swift just to completely throw them off their guard. Did not see that coming. Got the voice of an angel. I've apologized. I've apologized for a lot of comedians when when they met my civilian (laughs) friends. I um I actually find now because my persona is grumpy and someone who doesn't like people I have to go I just to let you know sorry are you saying persona or personality I don't know Well both yeah um the boiled down the distillation of my real persona <laughs> that I exhibit on stage is so nasty and unpleasant towards people I have to go go a distance to convince people I'm actually all right. So people will sort of see me out and they'll be so sheepish about approaching or saying anything. And I think as a comic, one of the things you get is if, if you're a comic, people broadly are just a bit scared of you because there's still in people's heads this whole put-down thing that they think, oh, I better not say oh, yeah. anything to that comic. They don't know. I can't fucking think of anything. Most of the ad-libs you've seen on telly are either faked or, you know, stolen. So the idea that you could come up to me and I'll I'll deliver this 10-minute withering put-down because you asked me if you could take the ashtray off my table in the pub, you know, it's nonsense. I'm, I'm very meek. And uh... Let me just phone the writers for a little bit. Hold on a second. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> Sorry, this guy wants... Can you... Oh, how much? Oh, I'm not really... Okay. <laughs> Wish we had writers. But yeah, I don't... Um, I th- they might expect you to be affable, but, um, you know, I think if... They, they genuinely feel like they know you and I, I would I, I had the privilege of meeting Billy Connolly in the street um, with a friend and I sort of knew well, unless he's really the best actor of his generation and he's a prick I think from seeing him on stage he's probably going to be nice to talk to and he was phenomenal and he enjoyed talking about stand up in the street I wouldn't feel the same approaching another comic say like a Dylan Moran who mm. I'm not saying he's rude but that persona is clearly You'd probably come up and say hello in the street, but don't expect me to stand for 10 minutes talking to you about your next gig because I'm nice, but I just don't care. So, mm. I, you know, I think people know. I don't know what your stage persona is, but um, you you seem very nice to talk to and, you know, you laugh Thank a you. lot and you're in the conversation. So if you become very good at comedy, people will know, oh, hey, there's Ricky, and they'll, they'll come up and talk to you. 
you can then choose to be an absolute prick if you want. <laughs> it's, <everyone. laughs> it's all a lie. I was... Uh, I've met James Corden a couple of times uh, through bits and pieces. Um, and... Uh, lots of different people got lots of different things to say about James Corden, but he's always been incredibly lovely to me. And I was at the uh, National Theatre going into the bookshop, and there's a big courtyard outside of it. And this was years ago before he became super, super famous, but he was already a bit famous. Mm. And I was going into the bookshop just before going to London Studios to do some work. Um, I saw him leave the National Theatre. He clocked me, waved at me, started walking towards me. And it took him 45 minutes to get to me because everyone wanted to talk to him. Everyone wanted photos with him. Um, and I just, I wasn't going anywhere, so I'll wait. <laughs> so I waited and he got over to me and he was like, oh, I've not seen you for a while. I've not seen you since that. And he was like, how are you? And we were chatting. Someone came up and said, oh, can I have a photo? And he went, oh, sorry, I'm just chatting to Mark here for a little bit. I'll, I'll be with you in a minute. And it was, it was a really interesting view of this is someone that people want to talk to. This is someone that who are they are absolutely drawn to. And I could see everyone, this whole thing coming towards me. But then when he got to me and someone wanted to him to do something slightly impolite, i.e. stop a conversation, he was very firm in going, no, I'm having this conversation. So that gave me two sides of that idea of being famous. I've been out on... I've. I've bumped into Jimmy Carr in the street when people have wanted photos and Jimmy will go, oh yeah, sure. And he'll go, give me it, take the photo. All right, see you later. You know, being very Jimmy about it. Boom. You know. That's what I do. <laughs> Is that what you do? I just, I just think uh, with, it takes the same amount of time to take the photos, not take the photo. Yeah. I think. And it's purely it's purely a time management thing. You just think, well, to have the conversation, say, oh, I'm just going to do this. I'll be with you in a minute. Just lean in and go, yeah, nice one. See you later. Not yeah. that I'm anywhere near as famous as James Corden. And nor would I take 45 minutes to get to Mark. I would have just, you know, I would have just turned back. I'd have given a little thumbs up and said, <laughs> not going to be worth my getting to you, mate, unless you've got a really good story for me. <laughs> <laughs> uh, and we've known each other for quite a while. Um, so next question, Ricky. Yeah, this, this one leads on to, uh, it is, I don't even know how he does it. Is it nice being famous? Like, because... I'll take this one, John. <laughs> <laughs> Please do. Um, I, no, do you know what? I will take this one. I'll take this one first. Um, I really like it sometimes in Bristol uh, when I go somewhere and if I get, like, a bag of chips or an ice cream and the person has seen me gigging and given me an extra free scoop or... <laughs> Like I genuinely find that incredibly exciting, and they're just like, "I saw you last week." Here you go, mate. Like that. To I, me, I, I have a fun. similar thing, but it's when I go into the Ferrari garage. That's quite <laughs> different. <laughs> um, I don't know. I, you know, some people appreciate. Uh, I don't think I'm therapeutically qualified to answer this question would be would be my immediate answer because if life's taught me anything, it's that the things I think I think I find out later in the line, I don't think. So what I'm inclined to say is, no, it's not nice. I don't, I, I, I don't like going out and thinking, can't wear that because everyone's going to look at me and I can't yeah. walk that way because that's the busiest way and people will come up to me. And as you say, perhaps expect me to be funny and I don't feel funny today. I don't like any of that. Um, but if I had some therapy in 10 years... 
I'd probably think, oh, actually, I did like that. All that time, I loved people looking at me because, you know, of that thing my granddad said to me when I was six and that little boy was still trying to get noticed. So I don't know. I don't think I like it. I certainly yeah. like the things it allows you to do. And and to relate it back to doing stand-up, what it does allow you to do is have an instant rapport with an audience. And what yeah. I do not miss is that pressure of, and London Axe would tell me all the time, you've got to get a laugh for your first line. And when you do your first bit of stand-up on telly, someone will say to you, you've got to get a laugh straight away. And that can fuck right off. Because I just knew... I'm quite good at this, but you're probably not going to really like me until three or four minutes in because you're just going to have to get used to the way I talk. And I don't have a zinger. I don't do zingers. I'll do mm. I'll do an hour of stories. You'll pick the two you like most, and I'll try and make all of them as funny as each of them so that you enjoy the hour. But I'm not going to come out and be like, I know what you're thinking, because I just haven't fucking got that, and it never interested me, and I yeah. hated that pressure. So what it buys you is a stand-up to be able to walk out and just have them go, oh, that's John. He's probably going to say something about the table not being straight. That <laughs> it just makes the gig so much easier. It makes it so much easier for you to get started. So yeah. that and, and all the other stuff that it means you can, you know, Mark and I did some gigs for Fair Share last year, which is a charity that we wanted to support. And, you know, Mark can say, do you want to do this? And I can say, yeah, I really like that charity. And then it'll probably sell well and you can help the charity. So mm. if you could do all that, then you put up with someone coming up to you in the beer garden and saying, oh, what's Jimmy Carr like? You know, sort of take or leave that. Yeah. But the full palette of it is 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 better. And it's not a choice you get to make either because the medium mm. that you that you want to get good at is is performed in front of thousands of people and on telly so it's just a pointless thing to to worry about i think try try and handle it as best you can but if you get really good at stand-up people are going to know who you are that's that's the game so you just have to engineer that in a way that it doesn't impact on your life too negatively and that is to do with not playing the game i'm not in okay magazine so i'm not saying you have a right to every aspect of my life but i am charging people to hear my opinions so equally i can't kick off if they want to talk to me in the street because that's the game yeah yeah that's good to know that's good to know i guess one and some more like practical questions about like the life of a pro this is from like some people who are doing like open i love i love life of a pro i was really excited when he said that's yeah love life of a pro um how how much how much money does a headliner get paid so not not someone who's doing tv or something but someone who's like on the circuit and like kind of in combination with that how many gigs would you either be expected or actually do in a week so um if john richardson is uh headlining for me he's getting much less than um <laughs> yeah and by the time i've fucking gone on it already is less than minimum wage anyway once i watched him <laughs> Rattle on to his fucking audience, inventing games with the dictionary. Who brings a dictionary to a fucking gig? Just put me on, man. <laughs> it varies, doesn't it, Alf? Like from yes. So circuit gigs can be anything on a Friday and Saturday. Can be anything from 150 quid to 300 quid. Mm. And the reason that's changed a little bit because some people will try and get you on a Friday and Saturday for a little bit less. And sometimes you can be um, a touring comic and you can, or maybe do a corporate and you can be doing, earning a lot more than that. But I think ballpark right in the middle, somewhere between 150 and 250 for a Friday or Saturday 
pretty much and and John's not been on the circuit for a while. It hasn't gone up for a while. And actually, no. The point I was going to make is it hasn't gone up since probably 1990. I would say, yeah, that's oh, what wow. the So you know, in terms of how difficult it is to to operate as a stand up now, if you start at a point when you've got a family and a mortgage, it's it's the same as it was in 1990 when your mortgage payment wasn't what it is now. And other things have gone up. I would say about a thousand percent at least in that time. And and the fee for headlining a gig. Th- that's not to say it's inoperable that's still you know that's still good money as Oliver's saying if you headline on a friday saturday night at a club you're already 400 quid in and you've only got to pick up like a student gig headlining in the week for 100 quid you're on 500 quid a week that's two grand a month that's you know 25 Mm. grand a year you know depending on what your as i say your other obligations are starting out that's all right Mm. yeah and that's why i say that's why i make that specific friday and saturday because i a lot of people complain about the money that comics are getting it's not enough and i think actually your friday and saturday that's your birthday parties that's your stagging hens that's people paying 15 quid a ticket 20 quid a ticket that's big clubs managing what they do making loads of money that's your fridays and saturdays but your sunday to thursday i think that is that's anything. That's law of the stag. That's take what you can give, pay what you can. Um, I don't want venues to take the piss out of me and my acts. But at the same time, I don't want to be an act that takes a piss out of a venue mm. and says, well, I'll tell you what, I can give you a gig for a thousand pound. And that pub goes, holy shit, I'm going to have to get 500 pound in debt <laughs> to have a comedy night on. I'm like, well, how much have you got? Tell me how many people you can get in that room. Okay, you can get 100 people in that room. How much are they paying? They're paying a tenner each. Oh, okay. Well, you're doing all right for yourself, aren't you? How much money do you want to make money from the door? Or do you want to make money from the bar or just the bar? Or do you want to, do you see what I mean? There's lots of complexity. Yeah. And when I work out those complexities, I'll then go, well, I can probably give you these people for this amount of money. What do you think? And they'll go like, yeah, all right. I think the other part of that question was, how many would you yeah. expect to do? Yeah. So I don't know, John, if you and Russell had this conversation, but we, when we started, because me and Russell started at exactly the same time, our aim was to get 20 gigs a month. Okay. And our aim was to get 20 gigs a month as open spots. And the theory was, and I think this was Russell's theory, the theory was if we can then convert those 20 into paid gigs if we can then get 20 paid gigs a month we're probably going to have a living from being a stand-up comedian Mm. because that is five gigs a week yeah yeah i don't know if you i don't know if you like that theory john or heard that theory yeah i I think the five night a a week thing works purely because then what you're saying is well wednesday and thursday you know wednesday there's usually a student gig Certainly when I started, I knew most of the student gigs would work on a Wednesday. Thursday, there's usually an open mic night somewhere, and Friday, Saturday, Sunday are club nights. So it's realistic to say, if I'm progressing and I'm willing to travel, I can find gigs on that. And then you give yourself a break. You say, if I'm not working Monday, Tuesday, that's not because I'm a failure. That's just because those are hard nights to get gigs on. Broadly, I'd want to be gigging seven nights a week when I started, because what else am I going to do? You know, all my mates starting out were comics, you know, so they were all working as well. So it's not like you can plan 
a night out or anything you might have to do that once a month and I, I i you know i wanted to i wanted to be around other comics and i wanted to get to that next step quicker and quicker and quicker so i knew the more you know the more i drive to preston for this 10 the closer i am to getting the paid weekend at the glee and as mark says that that then thinking about starting out versus what's my salary going to be you want your weekends full i'd say you make sure that three of the four weekends every month because that's your that's your monday to friday as a comic is friday night saturday night sunday night you want those full and you want the gig bookers because they're booking a year in advance the big clubs you've got to be on their list so that you want them thinking right i know i want him in for these two weekends and i know he can compare so he can compare in march and and then you go to the other big clubs and you say right i, I need an april weekend and a you know that then you look at a tax year and your shoulders start to drop because you think, right, I know I've got 20 good paid proper club weekends. And then get everything else you want, you know, just get all the other gigs you want. But yeah. yeah. It's, um... And this is, but we're talking from the perspective of a pro. When you are a newer act, it's literally everything yes. and anything. It's yeah, literally, everything and anything, yeah. You know, you just take, I've been out for, I remember, uh, going out for breakfast with my friend Claire who lived across the road and getting a phone call during breakfast of someone that needed me to go to Minehead uh, for a daytime gig at a Butlins. <laughs> and they were like, and I was like, Minehead takes an hour and 45. And they went, oh, actually it takes an hour and a half. If you lean now, you can be here. <laughs> and I was like, all right, I'm on my way. Because because going back to that question about how do you get paid gigs or how do you, the first one of the big things that almost every single professional comic I know got their first paid gig from some big promoters about an hour before that gig. <sighs> Cancellations are the thing you will get into into gigs and you'll get in with promoters if they say to you we need someone in an hour. Can you be there? And you go on my way. Like yeah. literally, I, I, you agree with that, John, you're nodding. I think that's, that's true for nearly everyone. Yeah. It goes back to that, you know, be willing to drive if you can and, and get there at short notice because yeah, that's, that's absolutely what it is. And especially in the West country, you know, you, at every level, somebody's going to get more money to do another gig a promoter's going to ring a comic and say well you're due to be opening tomorrow night in torquay for 50 quid but you can headline here for 100 they're going to cancel that gig so then torquay is looking for someone to open for 50 quid and going right to the top you'll start to get to a point where someone's going to get offered mock the week last minute and a, a club's going to need a headliner the next day so at every stage people are bumping the thing for the next thing and yeah. if you're there, yeah. oh. oh, I know I can phone them. because I mean, even not bumping, uh, you get a bad accident on the M4. Um, I know that I'm, if there's a proper, like, three-hour tailback, I know that all the clubs in Cardiff, uh, Wales, and the West Country are phoning me to say, are you free and who can do that gig? Yeah. Like, uh, Sadly, like... we don't need a compare because John's on and he left at one o'clock. <laughs> um... <laughs> Yesterday. Final question, Ricky. This, I'm so interested to see how you'll answer this. Especially oh, no. to asking two successful comedians. <laughs> Who's the biggest piece of shit you've ever worked with? <laughs> <laughs> when should you stop? And should you ever stop? Is there a point where you go, you know what, I've given them a go. 
I need to stop because obviously it's not when you die on stage because you need to keep going, get better. But is there a point where you should stop or do you, should you just... So, John Richardson, I've known you since you started and I've never asked you this question, actually. Have you ever got close to stopping? Uh, no, I don't think I've ever contemplated quitting because that first laugh was like just so clear to me that this is all I ever wanted to do. So once I got to a point, as as I say, d doing clubs was like the, that was the euphoric period of my career. Um, if you can think of any time of my life being euphoric. So once you know, well, that I can go back to that. The, the closest, the, the sort of most disillusioned I've ever been was when I started doing telly, my sort of, um, uh, fourth edinburgh show so i'd just been nominated for the main award and i was starting to get a bit of exposure but i felt the worst i'd been because i was having to turn over material quickly i had to turn over you've got to turn over an hour every year but because you're doing bits of telly and other stuff you're not doing the gigs that you need to to get good so there's a sort of problem once you start doing telly the expectations on you go so high but you're not gig fit because you're having to do the telly to get the exposure but doing the telly means you're not clubbing the best you ever are is those first edinburgh years when you're just gigging all the time and you're match fit so that's the time i thought right i don't I, I don't think i want to go further down this path um but i always knew i'd you know i'll just carry on doing circuit gigs and i might just not do edinburgh and that sort of side of it again but i've never wanted to quit as to as to when one should it's really hard because it's so specific there are certainly acts you know that somebody really qualified could tap on the shoulder and say that'll, that'll do that's enough you know but th there are acts that have never been paid and aren't very good but fucking love doing stand-up and all they want is to do an open mic night once a month no one gets to stop you doing that you know yeah. and they'll still have they'll still smash it once a year they'll have a gig and they'll be like oh it's fucking brilliant and then you know, as long as your expectations are realistic and you're honest about where you're at, you don't have to stop. If you really want to be a stand-up and you're ambitious and you're gigging every night and you're not doing very well and you're not getting paid, just personally, you should probably think about doing something else. But, you know, I, 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 don't, I don't have a problem with hobbyist comedians. You know, it's No, not... I was just about to say, I think the thing that makes us really lucky is that it's our career, it's our hobby... And it's our social life. <laughs> like, it's all of those three things. And just if it's not your career and it's your hobby and your social life, why take that away from yourself if you're enjoying like, Yeah. If your hobby is uh, ground, uh, sort of bowls or if your hobby is golf and you hate playing golf, stop playing golf. Mm. If your hobby is stand-up and you hate doing stand-up, stop it you know just don't do it i don't ever see a point where i could stop doing it because because i love it because it is my hobby it is my passion and it is you know nearly all of my friends are stand-ups are involved in stand-up um so yeah so if i was to stop getting paid i think i'd really enjoy just kind of running a free gig once a month knowing that i was being able to see new comics and mess about if the audience let me get away with it <laughs> there was a there's a quote from eric sykes 
which I think is a brilliant quote, which is, you don't decide you're a comedian, the audience decides you're a comedian. Mm. Yeah, that's very good. Let them decide. And and if that audience in your hobbyist gig wants to stop coming to your gig, then, then you know that you don't want to do it anymore. What you're saying there is to, to just sort of add a question onto it that what i think a lot of comedians have is they can't stop because actually their their performance on stage is so linked to their self-esteem and their sense of self-worth and i think that's where it can become dangerous uh, where you can't stop because actually that's how you measure whether you're a good person or whether you're successful or not and i don't that's that's a question for you ricky i don't really know you've obviously got this other thing that you're doing yeah do you feel the stand-up already sort of in your belly is like fuck me this is amazing and i love actually going to a lecture but secretly everybody knows i do stand-up and that's what i'm going to do or or could you could you say but if it, if it doesn't work out after a couple of years I, i'm not going to carry on well i i love stand-up like i love everything about it i love watching stand-up i love doing stand-up so i think i'll probably be doing stand-up for the rest of my life because i, I pretty much love it but to be honest, I also love medicine. Like I take the piss, but it's because I find it funny that I'm a medical student comedian, but I do actually want to be a doctor in some capacity. But the thing is, the only thing that has ever given me that instant joy, like to, like my question of is it pre or post or during the gig that I enjoy? For me, it's post. The only thing that has ever given me that feeling of like, wow, this is incredible, is the moment right after a gig. So to be honest, I'll probably be doing stand-up for the rest of my life, but whether or not I become pro or whether or not I join the circuit or whatever really is a logistical question of whether or not the timings work out in my life. But to be honest, yeah, I I enjoy it and I'm just going to see how things go. And if it, if it goes somewhere, then fantastic. But yeah, stand-up for me is probably one of the best things that I've ever done. Yeah. So that seems a very healthy attitude. And it occurs to me right at the end that what we're doing in the middle of a global pandemic is trying to convince someone not to become a doctor. So <laughs> I, you do that. <laughs> I rescind all my previous advice. What an awful <laughs> thing to have done. Oh, Captain, my Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Um, I think that is the perfect way to end this. We'll do another one. Of, we'll do another one of these um, every series with uh, with different people uh, because I like getting the questions from people. Yeah. Um, and now John Richardson just wants to watch Ricky do stand up. Absolutely. I can't <laughs> wait. Never thought I'd hear someone say that. I love it. I love I love seeing new people. And uh, yeah, I, I'm envious of the of the point you're at. I didn't enjoy it when I was at that point because there's yeah. so much pressure you put on yourself of like, like you know, all the questions are quite rightly and all we talked about was how do you get in with this person and how much did you get for that gig and it, it is an obsession. But when you look back, you think, fuck me, that was that was really the time, you know, because yeah. you get better so quickly and yeah. you're just around people who are at your level. It's a joy. So, yeah, enjoy it and we'll, we'll do one of Oliver's shitty charity gigs i'm sure at some point where he fucking waffles on for two hours and you never actually you're so angry when you go on that you end up dying on your ass because really you're <laughs> upset with mark i've got a lot lined up a lot lined <laughs> up um uh, right go and uh go and uh, chase more dogs thank you i love the um, idea that this has changed into me chasing the dogs i think it's very clear <laughs> who's on what end of the chasing <laughs> But if the dogs are still in the yard, then my wife and child can't get back in, which actually means I can have some daddy time. <laughs> I, mean, I mean, you know what that sounds like. Right. Um, uh, goodbye, John Richardson. Nice to see you both. Oh, well. Cheerio. Bye-bye. Oh, Captain, my Captain.
Oh, Captain, my Captain, thank you very much for uh, listening. I hope you found it useful. Um, I think you all know uh, what I'm going to say now, but uh, one of the things when you do podcasts is that uh, basically it, it, we want more people to listen to it because we think it's quite useful. Uh, Ricky, people can listen to it. I'm, I know they can listen to it on Spotify, and I listen to it myself to hear my own voice on Pocket Cast. Where else can people listen in? Well, you can listen in at Apple Podcasts. You can listen in at Breaker. Pretty much anywhere you get your podcasts, really. You can also listen to it at Google Podcasts, which I did not know existed until I started doing this. But just type in podcasts and wherever you get your podcasts, it'll be there. And to help us um, on all of those sites, there are ways to subscribe and to review and say nice things, correct? Yeah, or unnice things. I mean, <laughs> any attention is good attention on the internet. But yeah, best place to leave us a review is on Apple Podcasts. Just go to our page, scroll to the bottom and leave us a star rating. Tell us what you think. Tell us if you have anything you think we need to improve on. And follow us on Twitter at OhCatMyCatPod and subscribe to us on Spotify. Basically, follow us everywhere, except in person, because that wouldn't be good. I mean, unless you're a massive fan. And uh, sending questions, if you've got oh, questions, captain, topics that you captain. want us to talk about. Uh, re, uh, sort of refer oh, us and recommend us to your friends. And I think oh, that is captain, the end of this bit captain. of the podcast, correct? Yes, it is. It really, really oh, is. Captain, my captain.